Lord, we just come before you and ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask that you lead and guide and that your spirit will show us what you would have us to see from this, the book of James, and that you will be with us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 1, starting at verse 9. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. But the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen than with a burning heat, but it withers the grass, and the flower thereof fails, and the grace of the fashion of it perished. So also shall the rich man fade away in, in his ways. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to him that love him. We'll stop there for see where we're going to get to. Uh, this first section, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. And this is this thing that Jesus has said many times, that the first shall be last. And or Let's actually read it because it's not, that's not the great Matthew 19. I'm just thinking about that verse today, this morning. Matthew 19. First will be last, and last will be first. Let's start 19.28. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that you which have followed me in this generation, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of the glory, you shall sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone that has forsaken houses and brethren, or sister and father, mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit an everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And I just wanted to bring out the idea that it, the, the part that most people leave out on that sentence is, that verse when they quote it is, it said that many in that day, many that are first shall be last. And Mark, Mark 10 says the same thing. But Jesus has told us that when we do things and we look like we're not accomplishing things or that we think we're you know inconsequential a lot of times those people are going to be raised up above others and it doesn't mean that everybody who is you know in the spotlight will will be made last either it, it all of this comes down to and this really is showing us that God exalts those who use their gifts and we've shared this. If somebody is using, has one gift and they're using it 100% for God, they're going to be greatly blessed. And they're going to be blessed more than the person who has 10 gifts who only uses four of them. And so this is what this verse is saying, that there is going to be people that are going to be elevated in God's kingdom because they have been faithful with what they have been given. God does not look at each person and say, well, you're not as good as this other person who has lots of, lots of abilities and talents and say that they're worthless. He's going to judge each person according to what they can do. And this should be very exciting to people who don't have a lot, you know, don't feel they have a lot of, a lot of uh, talents to give back to God. But God also rewards people who use their talents and he will give them more and it's all him anyway. And this is one of the things we've got to understand all the time is everything that we have, everything we do is because of God. And we don't get blessed because of what we do. And anytime we think that we're doing it, it's not going to stand before God. 
And this is a place where people who are talented have to beware as well. It's very easy when you're talented to do things and think you're doing it for God. And a lot of times I think you're musicians. You know, there's a lot of people who are really good musicians and, and they'll play in church bands and everything and you listen to them and their music is good, but there's a huge difference between somebody who's just up there in love with God. I'm not sure if you know what I mean with that, but there's a difference when they sing. They may not, that person who's in love with God may not be as technically correct, but they're bringing God's spirit into the environment and they, and they love God and it, you can tell that there's a difference in what they're doing. The other person is just technically correct. I mean, it's beautiful music, wonderful music, but not necessarily bringing God's spirit in. And we see this a lot in some of the bigger churches. You get a great band up front playing and singing, and, but you look up there and it's like they're the only ones singing. They're the only ones in, in worshiping God and the rest of the people are not being brought into worship. And, Jesus, and God said in Psalms, you know, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all you, all you earth. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Make a loud noise in rejoicing. You know, God does not necessarily want us to make professionally perfect songs to him. He just wants us to praise him. And this is something that's important for us to understand that we are looking at that. We're looking at being able just to praise him, just to worship him. And I love to just sing to God. I love to sing to God a lot. And uh, it used to be when, when the kids and I would drive anywhere in the car, we'd be singing songs and praising God and you know, we'd have taken these, Sunday, these VBS songs and we'd have been singing them in the car. We sing the Bible songs, you know, whatever it is, we would sing all these songs to God. And God, I, I believe that God really loves it when we do that. He loves that we come to him, we worship him. Verse 10, but the rich in that he is made low because as the flower of the grass, he shall, fade, he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withers the grass and the flower thereof fails, and the grace of the fashion of it perishes, and so the rich man fades in his ways. James is a book, as we talked about last week. James is the brother, of, the half-brother of Jesus. He runs the church in Jerusalem. And the church in Jerusalem, if we, if we talked a little bit about last week, has been a church that's under persecution. When the, when the Jew becomes a Christian, even to this day in an Orthodox family, they are rejected. The people look at them and say, you're a traitor. They don't have, they, their businesses aren't, aren't gone to. Uh, I have a friend who, he became a Christian and his family actually held a funeral service for him. Will not accept a letter from him. Will not accept a phone call with, from him. Will not listen if somebody talks about him in the family. And here is James writing, and he's a little frustrated with the rich. <laughs> and you see this frustration. So James is in this place where when people get saved, they're being rejected. They're, they're starving out there. Paul collects an offering all through the epistles. He, he mentions this offering he's collecting so that he can take the offering to the church in Jerusalem and present them an offering from all the Gentiles around the around the Roman Empire that he's gone to go visit and he's bringing, you know, he's planning on bringing this big offering to them to give them relief. So there's a little bit of disparity here. James has never been happy and 
it's an interesting place because it's, he's not, he's saying that the rich are not rewarded. And this is kind of going very much against the Jewish mentality. The Jewish mentality has this idea that if you honor God and serve God, you're going to be rich. And that's the way it's always been. They look at Abraham, served God, was rich. Job, served God, was rich. You know, they keep looking at all these people who served God and they got rich. And this is part of the, even today with the name it and claim it, you know, if you serve God, you're supposed to be healthy, wealthy, and, you know, and wise, you know, because you're serving God. And if you're, and if you're, you know, if you're not those things and something's wrong with you, you're not serving God enough. And that's the whole name it and claim it, you know, I, I should be rich. And this whole idea that James is looking at it and says, hey, the rich are going to fade. Their, their, their wealth is going to fade away. And it really is a true statement. I mean, eventually the rich person is going to die. And they're not taking their money with them into heaven. Now, if they used, God's, used the money to do God's kingdom, then they're going to send rewards on ahead of them. And this idea of the shortness of life is all through the scriptures. Psalm 90, verses 5 and 6 says, You carry them away as, a, as with a flood. They are sleeping in the morning, and they are like grass that which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up, and in the evening it is cut down and withers. This is the idea that God is saying. Our life is short. And the older we get, the more we start realizing that our life is short. Kind of amazing to me that you know, at, at every age you don't think you're old. When you're a teenager, an old person is somebody in their 20s, maybe 30s, you know, they're old. You get into your 20s and it gets pushed back to about 40. You get to, be, when you're 50, you know, you don't think of 60 as to be an older even, you know, it's got to be 70 or 80. You know, it's always 20 or 30 years beyond wherever you're at is old. But God's showing us that at the same time in the scriptures is that life is short no matter how long it is. In uh, Psalm uh, 103, verses 15 and 16, As for man, his days are as grass, and the flowers of the field, so he flourishes, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and the place that it is thereof shall know it no more. And again, he's saying, you know, we're just here for a short time and gone. And it's kind of amazing. Isaiah 40, uh, verses 6 and 7 say the same thing. How much do we think we're important while we're alive? Most people think that, you know, even the people who don't think they're important think they're important to somebody or something. But you look at history, how little do we know about anybody's life in history? Is even big name people. And you think of somebody like George Washington for us here in America. How much of his life do we really know anything about as the average person? The French Indian battle when he was a colonel for the, for the British Army and and his coat was shot up and he didn't get wounded at all. And the Indians couldn't understand how he got protected. One great story that most people don't even know about anymore. You know, his inauguration where he gave a great prayer and, and speech for God. His final farewell, which he gave a great prayer and speech for God. Most of these things aren't even known to our students in this day and age. And that's only like four things you know about his life if you've done any study in the old, older days. And if you actually, and then there's those people who actually have studied him and know a good bit about his life. But the average person knows practically nothing of his life. You look at somebody like Abraham Lincoln. 
How much do people really know about Abraham Lincoln anymore? Most of the people, all they know is that he that he gave the emancipation uh, the the slaves, and they know the Gettysburg Address. You look at him, and you know how many people know that he grew up in a log cabin, that he was a lawyer, actually a very successful lawyer in Illinois, terrible politician, having lost what was it three times before he finally became before he, you know, got to be president of the United States. You know, it's yeah. You know, there's little things that we, you know, but again, even with what I know about him, I know very little over the whole span of his life. So we think about this. Even people who are famous aren't well known a few years after their life or a generation or two after their life. Uh, even in the scriptures, we look at what goes on. Abraham, the founder of the Jewish nation, and we only know about five events in his entire life from Genesis. You know, this is a very small amount. A man who lives to be 150, whatever it was he lived to be, you know, and, and we know so little about his life. Life is short and it disappears. And we really need to keep in mind on that. That's why Jesus said we need to send our, you know, put our treasure in heaven. Because anything that's done here is going to be forgotten. Very quickly be forgotten. And bits and pieces, if you get well-known enough, bits and pieces of your life will be known by certain people. But how little is known? How little? And here he's saying, they come and they go. We come and we go. Even James, the important pastor of the Church of Jerusalem, there is not much known about him in history. Not much at all is known about him. He understood how short life was, how fast it disappears, and how it is not remembered. We come, we look beautiful for a short period of time in the, with the grass that grows, we might even have some influence over people's lives, and then we pass away and we're forgotten. <laughs> or just a little bit, you know, one or two things of our life are remembered. Maybe some words uh, here and there, but not, not a whole lot is remembered. And here he's just reiterating what God says. Short life. Short life, short time. Beautiful for a short time and then gone. And it says, Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Endures temptation. Talked a little bit about that last night. The idea of enduring temptation. A lot of the ways to look at enduring temptation is how do we look at it in the first place? Are we expecting that everything's going to be bed of roses, all hunky-dory, no problems? If that is our thought pattern, we're in trouble. <laughs> because we will be shook to the core at every test that we have. And here he's saying, blessed is he that endures that temptation, is able to go through it and temptation is that whole struggle that we have where God puts before us these trials or allows the trials is more properly <laughs> the term he allows the trials to come our way and we've said this before he's not putting the trial in our in our path so that he will know what we are going to do he lets the trial come so that we will know what we're going to do. Because we can lie to ourselves so often and say, oh, I'm, I'm all for God, I'm not gonna fall down at all. 
and the trial comes and we end up flat on our face wondering what happened. And God says, this is for you. And then it says he will get the crown of life. In the scriptures, we see a couple of crowns. We see the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8. We see the crown of life here in James 1.12. We see the crown of glory in 2 Peter 5.4. We see the, the crown of life again in Revelation 2.10. We're told that we have an imperishable crown in, in 1 Corinthians 9.24 and 25. And a crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. So we have several crowns that are available to us to earn. Now what we're going to do with these crowns, I don't know. What these crowns mean, I don't know. <laughs> but God has a reward for us in heaven. And we want to be able to look and say, these verses implicitly tell us that we're to desire these crowns. Okay? How do we get them? In this one, <laughs> we have to endure. We have to endure. The greatest thing I want to hear when I stand before God and Jesus at the Bema Seat is, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into heaven. I am pretty sure that some people are going to hear, well, you, you made it because of grace, enter in. But many of us, and what we should really want to hear is that, well done, good and faithful servant. That we have used our talents, we have served him well. Not perfectly, because we can't serve him perfectly. But that we serve him well, that we have done what he's asked us to do. We have shared, shared the gospel. We have trained up disciples. We have lived the life as an example. And we, he wants to says that God loves us. He's promised us that he's the answer. There hath no temptation overtaken you, but such is common to man that God is faithful and will provide a way of escape. And that first part of that promise is so special. No temptation is uncommon to man. Satan always will try to lie to us and say, you're the only one who's ever had to face this problem. You're the only one that's so sinful that you thought those thoughts. You're the only one who's so sinful that you've done that. Done that. He is lying to us because God says that there is nothing that's uncommon. Ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing new under the sun. Satan is not even throwing new trials and temptations at us. He's used them hundreds, thousands, millions, billions of times over, over the course of people's lives. He doesn't throw new things at us. So when Satan comes along and says, so you're such a terrible person, no one else has ever thought this thought, or no one else, no one else suffers this way, call him the liar that he is. Because that is what he's trying to do. He's trying to make you feel isolated from everybody else. Usually what you'll find is if you do open your mouth to trusted friends, they've, the trusted friend probably has gone through what you're going through. Much less everybody else. This is what we need to be looking at. There's nothing new under the sun, and God has promised the strength to get it through. That involves turning over to Jesus. And usually what ends up happening is anywhere where we think that we cannot fail, that is where we're going to find ourselves failing. It works that way every time. Because we don't put a guard on, our, on that part of our life. And Satan's a pretty smart attacker. He doesn't attack the place that's guarded. He attacks where you have 
less guard or no guard. Just as any army would, just as any thief would, the thief, the, the average thief is not going to go to the house that has a security system and an animal in it. They're going to go to the house that is open windows and, and advertising that nobody's home. Okay, Satan is the same type of person. He attacks where we are not protected, where we are not guarded. Verse 3, 13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. This is so important for us to understand. God allows Satan to come in, to come in and tempt us, but it is not God who tempts. God is not trying to get us to do evil. If he did, we would, be, we would, be, we would commit it because he's perfect. He knows that. But he is good. He is not going to tempt us to do evil. That is not his goal. God does not lie. He does not try to get us to do evil. He does not do wrong. And to also come to a cross that he cannot do those things because it is against his character. Have you ever met somebody that you look at their character and say, this person is so honest that if they told a lie, you'd be shocked, okay? This person is so honest that if they stole something, you'd be shocked. And there are a handful of people out there that are that way, that are just so honest that if they were to do something of that nature, you'd go, whoa, how, you know, why? Well, take that type of person and multiply it by a billion times and you'd have God. God is truth. He cannot lie. God is love. He will always love because that is who he is. When, and we've talked about this. When God made the Ten Commandments, when he made the laws, he didn't just capriciously say, well, I think, I think telling the truth is good, so we'll say telling truth is good. You know, and under that mentality, he could have just as easily have said, you know, lying is good. But he didn't because he is truth and he's all of the commandments and laws are who he is satan is coming along and trying to trade everything out and this world is falling into his lies you know the idea that telling the truth is bad i've met people who seem to believe that telling the truth is bad they just won't tell the truth because they just for whatever reason i don't even understand it uh, we have this idea going on right now in this world that getting married is bad, sleeping together is good, and all the other sexual sins is, is good. But binding yourself to one mate for the rest of your life is a bad thing, and we're seeing that in this world. We're seeing everything that God calls good being declared bad, and we're seeing it, everything that God says is bad being, being declared as good. Yeah. Well, we're in the end times. We're at the end times, and it's what God said would happen in the end times. But it's still very scary. It's very depressing in one sense to see it happen, because everything that God, you know, which of course makes us as Christians, when we live the way God wants us to live, be standing out like a sore thumb. 
Now, I think it's amazing when I, when I tell people, you know, I've been married for 34 years, and they're going, wow, what a long time. You know, they've been saying that, though, way back when I was working in the restaurants, and they were going, I've been married for 10 years. Wow, how'd you stay together that long? You know, the world is amazed when they meet somebody who gets married, gets married number one, you know, but gets married and stays married is really amazing to the world. What's really sad is when you say it to a Christian and they say, oh, wow, you know, that's a long time. Because that just shows you that their, their belief is not in what God says. And I look at how long I've been married and saying, we're just getting started because I compare myself to these people I know that have been married 50, 60 years. They got, you know, they got married when they were 18 years old and they're in their 70s or 80s and they're, and they're still married because they did it God's way. And I go, wow, that's where I want to be. You know, when I get to that age, I want to still be married. If I get to be 80, I want to be celebrating my 60, you know, my, my 60th uh, year of being married. We'll see if I live to be 80 to start with, but, but you know, if I get, when I get there, I'm going to look forward to being able to say, I've been married to the same person for that long. Again, are we living the way God wants us to be? And he says, when we are tempted, I love this, it says, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Our own lust, the desire for inordinate objects. And that can be lust for anything. It could be lust for another person. It could be lust for uh, possessions. It could be lust for power. It could be lust for alcohol and drugs. I mean, we never know what it could be, but we are drawn away by our own lust. And we see this over and over. So often Satan gets, a t gets blamed for, for us falling into sin, but uh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And we have three things against us that can lead us into sins, and here James is just saying one of them. Our own lust entices us. It draws us away. It's a bait. You know, our flesh wants, wants bad. Our eyes, especially for men, will draw us into, into lust. And then just the whole pride of life. You know, what's good for me? And then Satan, all he does is if we're not doing, if we're not doing bad enough with our own three, he'll, he'll send some demon to give us a thought to help us, help us along. But we can do our own sin. We don't even need the demonic world to fall into sin. We are sinners. Okay? And this is something we have to understand as Christians. We are sinners. Period. The people we deal with are sinners. That means the natural desire of man is to sin. Now when we have God in our heart and everything, we can, we can have the power to not sin as often, but we're still going to sin. The lost world, if they've been raised in an ethical way, may be able to not sin sometimes, but they don't have as much power not to sin. And it's not as much desire for them to not sin, especially as, as we said earlier, we're in the end times. People are being encouraged to sin and, and say it's good. You know, oh, I just have a new girl every night because that's what I want to do. Oh, that's fine. You know, people have no problem with it. They're, they're, we have a wonderful term in the, in, in, the, in the young people's vernacular. It's a hookup. Just a new person every night. No big so deal. And this is the place where this world is deceiving us. Our movies are filled with people hooking up and, 
and having affairs and calling it okay and everything works out. Our, our dramas on TV are nothing but filled with sex and, and mistresses and hookups and all this stuff. And then we wonder why people fall into this temptation, even Christians who are filling their minds with this mentality you know, and all the diseases that go along with it. But, but again, we look at in the Bible, how many nations were destroyed because of specifically the sexual immorality that they had were gotten to. The promised land was conquered by Israel because of how bad they had gotten into sexual misconduct. In Egypt, it was no different. In, in Babylon, Assyria, Greece, Rome, all these nations, when they fell, had no problem with all forms of sexual misconduct, and it wasn't a problem. They called it maybe not good, but they also didn't call it bad. And we're looking at our world who's calling all sexual misconduct good. As soon as our Supreme Court de declared homosexual marriages were okay, within three months I started hearing the reports on the news of people who wanted everything else. This one guy was suing because he wanted to marry his dog. Another person is going into the whole idea of pedophilia. He wants to you know, have sex with kids. Polygamy is coming back with a vengeance. You know, so all of these things, as soon as you start opening the door to one, all of them come out. And when we get to the place where all of them are accepted and not a problem, then we are in the same place that every empire is that's been destroyed, and this country will be judged. And possibly the world, because I don't know how many places you can go without this stuff being accepted in this day. So we're, this, again, is appointed to we're at the end times. Everything is man is doing what's right in his own eyes. Judgment will fall because of that place. It fell in, in Noah's day when everybody did what was right in their own eyes, and the whole world was destroyed. And we're going to see that happening very soon. Then verse 15, when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Lust leads to sin. And that's why Jesus said that if somebody lusts after a woman, he's committed adultery in his heart. If man, if he is angry with a brother, he has committed murder in his heart. If you continue to dwell on those thoughts, you will eventually commit the act. And the acts start in the heart. Jesus said, out of the treasure of our heart, we speak. It also is out of the treasure of our heart we do. If we dwell on a lust, any of these lusts that are there long enough, they will conceive and produce the actual sin. It's just a matter of time. The you know, men who get into pornography eventually will act out in some way, whether it's just an affair or a prostitute, but they will act out in some way eventually because the thoughts of it are not enough. You get out of fantasy. They have to get out of fantasy and get into reality. The thief usually does not just go jumping into stealing right away. That's usually the thoughts of how would I do this? Can, you know, how would I get away with it? And they think about it and they think about it and then they say, well, I might as well try it. I've thought about it long enough. I can, I, I can commit the perfect crime. And then, they, and then they end up in jail because, they, <laughs> because there is no such thing as a perfect crime. But, you know, but it starts in the heart. The way we speak to other people starts in the heart. 
If we have a hatred towards somebody and we're dwelling on that hatred, eventually we're going to speak that hatred out to them. And if we really have a strong enough hatred, maybe even go to a physical abuse of the person and or murder. What we do comes from the heart. And this is one of the things I have problems when people will make fun of somebody and they're saying, well, I'm only joking. I have problems with that because that shows a hatred somewhere in their heart toward that person that they would make fun of that person and try to, try to make them look bad to other people. There's a problem in that thought process that led to those words. And this is one of the things as Christians we look at, you know, how do we talk to one another? How do, what do we say about one another? Are we building one another up or are we tearing down? Are we saying negative things about people? And this is the thing I'm working very much in my life to make sure that I speak positive things about people. I don't want to speak negative words about people, even though I know that people have problems. I don't want to be sitting here talking about their problems unless I'm talking with them and trying to help them through their problems. But I don't want to talk about their problems behind, you know, to other people or even to myself, you know, because that brings about a negative thought about them. And I want to be able to speak about people and say, God loves us people. God loves us all. And he wants us to be built up and edified. And we want to see people change. And, and the way they're going to change is by looking at it and saying, this person loves me as much as God loves me. And that's an important area. I love to be able to tell people that people in this church are growing and, and, and moving along. Are we perfect? Absolutely not. Will we ever be perfect? Absolutely not. But I look around and I see so much growth in so many of the people in this church that I get excited about it and say, this is, this is good. The, the growth of the two of you in this room over the last two, three years has been phenomenal. It's been fun to watch and see that changes and the, the clarity and the getting into God's word and, and moving forward and, and, and becoming more Christ-like. Dealing with, dealing with people in that way. And it's important that we keep doing that because if we start concentrating on the lust and being enticed, it will produce sin. Will produce sin. And then it says that sin brings death. And this isn't always just the long-term physical death. If you commit a sin, you are dead in that particular area and it destroys a part of your testimony. And we've all seen that happen in our life where we get angry with somebody and, and, and blow up at them. And usually other people hear it <laughs> and they're going, well, that wasn't very Christian. <laughs> or what'd you do that for? That wasn't very Christian. And there's a death in our relationship with God, and at least in their eyes. God's going to forgive us and we know that he will. But that is where we come to Paul. Paul says, do we sin so that grace will abound? No. <laughs> you know, Grace abounds when we sin, but we don't sin just so we can get more grace because God's going to give us grace no matter what. And when we sin, he gives us grace. But that doesn't mean we go out and we sin just so God can give us grace because he's going to give us grace anyway. And death, as lust produces sin and sin produces death. And what ends up happening when we sin? We have a choice in front of us. We either repent, confess and repent, 
and draw closer to God and his people, or we pull away from God and his people when we sin. And this is something that happens all the time. We have a choice when we sin. And I've seen it over the years where people have pulled the wrong way. They sin. They don't feel comfortable around God. They don't feel comfortable around God's people. They refuse to confess and, confess and repent from their sin. And the next thing you know, they're not around very much. Because they just feel guilty and convicted when they are around. We need to always remember, confess our sins and draw close to God. Confess our sins. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. He's ready to forgive us. He's ready to forgive. Why is He ready to forgive? Because Jesus has already paid for it. <laughs> as far as He's concerned, it's already paid for. He wants to be able to have that fellowship with us again. It's already paid for. It's already forgiven. God just wants us to agree with Him that it was bad and that we were wanted to put it under the blood and, and draw close to him. Because when we feel guilty, the last place we want to be is with God's people. The last place we want to be when we feel guilty is reading our Bible. <laughs> because almost inevitably when we're, when we're feeling guilty, we're going to read things about whatever it is we're feeling guilty about. That's it's amazing because it is a living word. It doesn't matter where we go, we're going to find things about God speaking about what it is we're guilty or that we shouldn't be guilty or that we are guilty. You know, We'll find whatever it is in there. So we tend to, when we feel guilty, push our Bible away and say, I'm not opening it. We tend to not come to church because we don't want, you know, whatever reason, we may feel that everybody's looking at us. They all know, they all know what I'm doing. They all, know, they all know who I am and what I'm doing. You know, and all it is is that guilty conscience that's saying you've done wrong. And God says, confess your sin to him. He'll forgive it. He'll draw you into his arms and, and bring you into fellowship and re restore your fellowship with him and the people. Two choices. The, the easy way of forgiveness or the hard way of feeling condemned and pulling away from God, losing the blessings that he's given you. And our sin, our lust, will lead to sin. And this is what Jesus said, that our sin will be shouted from the, mount, from the highest rooftops. Our sin cannot stay hidden. We need to confess it or it will be, he will bring it out because we're his children. And we've seen this over and over in lifetime. How many big-named pastors on TV and everything have had affairs and then they get called out because they didn't confess it to God and, and everybody in the nation knows it. You know, it's happened many times because they felt they could get away with it and God says no, especially not a leader is, is going to get away with it. Their sin will be revealed because they are an example and it's not something that God wants to be used against them. So he'll say this is going to be ex ex exclaimed everywhere. And this is why it's important to confess your sins, to go forward and not follow, follow, follow into them. It says, Do not err, my beloved children. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow nor turning. Every good gift comes from God. Every good and perfect gift. And perfect is that whole idea of bountiful, okay? 
A God gives good gifts. And it is wonderful when God's pouring blessings down on us. And we want to keep in remembrance, and this is very important in this verse, every good and perfect gift comes from God. Okay? We need to keep that in, 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 in thought. And this is why we, we were talking about it last night. We look around and we see God in everything that's going on. God is in control of everything. God is in charge. He is sovereign. No matter what is going on in my life, it's for good, and it is what's best for me. Even when everything seems bad and it doesn't seem like it's very good for me, God says, this is what's best. And this is why I love what I learned. And I, I keep quoting this because I love it so much. You know, God's perfect will is what I would choose if I knew everything. No matter how, what's going bad, what I think is going bad in my life is what is good for me if I knew everything about it. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to enjoy it. And I keep bringing that up. There's many things that have happened to me that I don't enjoy. There's many things that go on in my life that I'm going, God, this doesn't make any sense, but you say it's for good, and I'm going to believe it, but it doesn't make any sense now. You know, maybe when we get to heaven and he show, replays our life and we see it from the spiritual side and in, in, in the future and, and everything, we'll see how it was perfect even at that moment. Maybe not, but we will at least know from his point of view that everything was good. God is producing in us his life. He wants to work out everything that is bad in us. Sometimes that puts us into positions that bring out what is bad so that he reveals that that's what's in our heart. Because man is very capable of lying to, you know, to themselves. You know, every one of us are cap very capable of lying to ourselves. I would never do such and such. And then we find ourselves doing it you know, a year, two, three years down the road. I would never do this. You know, I would never come and you know, have this happen. I have seen how easy it is to start stepping down the wrong path in, in certain areas in my lifetime. And you look and say, you know, you know and, the, and my greatest example is when I would, as a teenager, I would have said, I will never not go to church. I would never not read my Bible. And as I've said before, you know, I found myself in my 20s getting so busy with work and having all kinds of reasons for it, but drifting away from God. Yeah. And, it, and like I said, at, at 17 years old, I would have said that would have never happened. There's just no way. Yeah. I would say pretty safely that I would never drink. But, you know, I also know that under the right circumstances, under the right things, that it is a possibility that it could happen. So I... You know, it, it seems far-fetched to me that that would happen, but who knows? I would say I would never commit adultery. But again, you know, you have to, we have to keep a guard on our heart in all those areas. Because how easy would it be for the right person to come around and give you just enough attention under the right, right situations to draw your heart and your affections away? Never say never. So we want to be very careful about these things. Because if we get to the place where we say, it can't happen in my life, It'll happen. it will happen mainly because I don't put a guard on there. And Satan will come in with just the right circumstances, the right combination of things, and you'll end up falling into some place that you say you would never happen. So be very careful. Guard your heart. 
Guard your mind. Paul said, put on the helmet of salvation. Put on Jesus Christ on all of our thinking. Do not let the thoughts from outside come in and stay there. He has to be our guard. He, we are in Christ. When Satan knocks on the door to give us a temptation, we need to send Christ to the door and say, I'm going to be in Christ. I am not going to be one that doesn't have a guard on my, on my, on my heart and on my life. And I'm going to recognize that everything is from God. Everything is from God. And it says, He is the Father of lights, and there is no variableness, no shadow of turning. It's all bright when He brings it in. Sometimes too bright for us. <laughs> when, a lot of times when He sends us His gifts, it also shows us how sinful we are. And we've talked about this, how every time we, we work things out of our life and God changes us, He just turns the light on a little brighter and shines it in another part of our heart and shows us how much more there is there to get out. Anytime that we think that we've managed to arrive into perfection, God is going to show us how far we have to go. Because there's, we're never going to get there. Our heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it, is, the Word tells us. But we all will end up falling at times. All of us will fall in different ways and different, different processes, but we all have this tendency to fall and fail. God knows it. And He's waiting there with open arms to catch us. And it is, it is important that we take time to go, go to God and get good counsel on any decision because I can't tell you how many decisions, bad decisions I made in my lifetime. And being a father and a, and a husband, it, it hurt not, usually didn't hurt me as much as it hurt the family. I've seen my family being hurt more than I feel I was hurt. People will say, well, I just found myself in this situation and I, and I fell into it. Well, let's see. You said yes to going to a party that you knew was going to be, the drinking was going to go on. You knew you had a problem with drinking. You knew you were going to hang out with the person that was a drunk. And you're surprised that you ended up drunk. Yeah, and you go, down the, you go down the path of decision making on it and say, your very first decision should have said no. You, know, you look at sometimes when people say, well, I just fell into or I don't know how I got into this decision. You look at the chain of thoughts. The last one, yes, may have been that snap decision that they felt they had no, no choice in, but they made a lot of decisions that led to that really bad decision that they felt they had no choice in, that they could have stopped it at any point, you know, four or five places where they had a real solid place where they could have made a different decision and had time to think about it and didn't. And so, again, the idea of snap decisions, yes, every once in a while, you know, a clap of thunder hit the, hit the building and the power went out. What do we do? I didn't anticipate the clap of you know, lightning knocking out the, the power. So, yes, now I have, but I've still had in my mind plans for what to do in the event of that a lot of times. Training that went into that, that says, if this happens, this is what I do. And this is one of the reasons we do Bibles learning so that we get taught how to respond to these things so that when we're in the middle of the temptation, the middle of the you know, offer from Satan, we go, hold it. No, we did a Bible study on that. You know, this is what I should do. We may not always do what, we're, what we know we're supposed to. We follow and make bad decisions that lead to worse decisions. Solomon asked for wisdom and was very good while he stayed with God. And then, then he had his problem with women and started collecting wives and concubines which led to his downfall. 
And the Bible at the very beginning said, kings, do not multiply unto yourselves wives. And basically it said, have one. <laughs> but, but every time you looked at that multitude, David had problems because he had so many wives, which had so many kids that he didn't have time for. And Solomon had David's problem many, many times over. And then, you know, you read into how his wives enticed him into idolatry by saying, you know, basically saying, you know, you've got your temple for your God. I don't have a temple for my God. And he started building them their temples for their gods. And you can know the next step was, you know, hey, Solomon, you never do go to church with me. Why don't you come, to the, why don't you come and worship one, once in a while with me? And the next thing you know, he's not with God. But it's a series of decisions that usually lead to these big problems. And at each step, we could have made a better decision. And this is why we look at all of these things that go on. And how are we training ourselves? How are we looking? This is one of the reasons that study of God's Word is so important because it starts changing the way we think into God's way of thinking. And we, I know you guys have experienced it because you've shared it at times where you're, you started to make, you started wandering, wandering down the wrong path and you're going, hold it, that's not where I should be. And you turned away before you completed the path that you would have normally gone down. And so this is what happens. We train ourselves, we train ourselves, we fill ourselves with God's mind and eventually we start learning a new way of thinking, a new way of behaving. And we start seeing the successes that God brings from it all. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to look. We ask that you always give us strength to make the right decisions. Help us to see those decisions. Give us light and clarity. Help us to seek after you in all of our decisions. In your son's name, amen.